Welcome back to the Alumni Voices podcast. I'm here today with Professor Anne Tarker. Anne qualified as a chartered accountant in 1985 and graduated with her PhD in accounting at UWA in 2003. In 1996, Anne commenced as an accounting teacher and researcher at the UWA Business School, where she gained a professor position in 2011. Anne's time at the UWA Business School culminated in her appointment as head of the Accounting and Finance Discipline Group from 2012 until 2016. As her career started to take a new turn, Anne was appointed as a member of the Australian Accounting Standards Board, the AASB, from 2014 to 2017 and became their research director in February 2017. She was an academic fellow of the International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation, the IFRS, from 2011 until 2012. Anne has authored a textbook on accounting and written a wide range of research papers related to IFRS standards, for which she has received many awards. Anne is an active member of the International Accounting Academic Community, having served on several boards and committees. In July 2017, Anne was appointed as a member of the International Accounting Standards Board. Anne is a member of the Business School Ambassadorial Council's UK chapter. Professor Anne Tarker, welcome to Alumni Voices. Thank you, Rob. Um, So, Anne, my first question uh, takes us back to, I guess, the start of your journey. What are your fondest or most abiding memories of studying at UWA as an undergraduate student? The answer to that would be my lecturers. There were some very colourful characters. Uh, In particular, I remember Richard Fail, the tax lecturer, and Terry Walter, the auditing lecturer, These people were very skilled at making what could have been very dry subjects very interesting. I also remember Ruth Johnston, who was a lecturer in industrial relations, and she really opened my eyes to the world of research and uh, a very, very interesting area of work. That's a good good place to start. Thank you. Um, So I, I guess my next question is, did you have a career pathway mapped out as an undergraduate student or did your career develop organically? I'd say my career developed organically. I knew that I wanted to do something, I just didn't know what it was I wanted to do. So I tried different things, uh, depending on what was available at the time, and things evolved. Yeah, and that's a a common story, I think. So Uh, so you did a further two degrees at UWA. Tell us what kept you coming back to study at this university. Um, Definitely the quality of the people. When I started my master's degree, Uh, I was in a class with Philip Brown. Uh, He was the lecturer of the class. Um, Philip Brown is a world-renowned scholar, uh, and I don't use that term lightly. I know it's bandied around a lot these days, but um, Philip uh, did research that opened up an entire new research area for accounting and finance research. Um, And that was fantastic, but it was how he was in the classroom that was so notable and so memorable, the way he treated the students and uh, really encouraged people to get the most out of them as students. As well as Philip, there was Professor Azan. Professor Azan had come to UWA via Malaysia, Melbourne, PhD at the University of Chicago, and was at that time heading up the accounting and finance department. 
and Azan set very high standards and was a great role model in terms of encouraging people, caring about people, and created a, a very um, supportive group of academics, and they were a very welcoming group. Uh, so it was it was an environment in which I could flourish. Uh, and when you mentioned the, the way he treated the students, one of the academics treated the students, what, what about that clicked for you? Well, here we are, have a person in the classroom um, who, who's so famous and so many achievements, but that's not what the class was about. He, he wanted to relate to people and open this world of research to people and, and treat them in, he treated them with so much respect and in so much encouragement. So people come from all different backgrounds and different skills. Um, he, he wanted to encourage them. So that was what resonated with me, the way that he ran those classes to draw out the best obviously to communicate what he wanted to teach, but to draw out the best of the students. So it's yep. so a very uh, dynamic process going on. So he was a research rock star, but it was it was all about the students for him and about their passion, developing their passion. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I came back to UWA to do my master's as a mature age student. So I've you know, been around a few egos in my time. Yeah. And, and it wasn't like that. It wasn't, you were in, in rock star territory, but it wasn't like that. It was all about the students and, and the topic, what we were studying and so forth. Could you maybe tell me a bit about how being a mother, how that fitted into this journey for you as well? Mm. Well... As, as I said, I, I always knew I wanted to do something. It was always there, but I just didn't know how how it was going to evolve and I did different things. So prior to doing what I'm going to talk about where, where I began teaching, I had been in the profession, so I was working in the profession of accounting. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, ha- I stopped doing that at the time that my husband and I went to Karatha, which is a mining town in the northwest. And we went there with two very small children. And we arrived. And in the first week, I was approached by the local chartered accountant who asked me, you know, what time I'd be coming to work on Monday. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to do that with a six-week-old baby, a two-year-old child, and a husband who worked away. And in a new town. I didn't know anybody. So, uh, But what I did do was I started teaching. And teaching then... um, there was a couple of aspects to it. One was the aspect we're going to talk about in terms of how I came to love teaching. But there was also the fact that teaching was a very family-friendly occupation, the way I could do it. Yeah. Um, it so I was very grateful for that that opportunity. And that was a way that I could um, feel that I was doing everything I wanted to do with my young family, but I could also do my teaching as well. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So let, let's move on to that part yeah. of your journey. How, yeah. how did you, you know, how did you find yourself teaching and what yeah. what about it did you love? Yes. So um, there's a local college or at the time there was a local college in Karatha and I was I- invited to come in to do some teaching and that began my teaching journey um, and, uh, teaching into adult education so all my students were um, adults. And I began with an accounting class that then morphed in eventually over the time I taught financial accounting, management accounting, business law, um, management, um, Excel spreadsheets, um, business simulation games, an incredible variety of things that I was allowed to. I had the privilege of of teaching with these wonderful students who would come and go because it's a mining town. People come and go. So I had a fabulous exposure to the teaching experience, a lot of autonomy, a lot of interest 
interesting material and then that wonderful ingredients of students who want to learn. So yep. it, it was a great start to teaching. So I knew that I really liked teaching and when it was the time to come back to Perth, um, I did reach out to some of my colleagues who were still in chartered accounting and had various conversations. And one conversation that I remember very well was a person who said, well, you know, you have all this teaching experience. Why would you walk away from that now? And it was at that time that um, we decided I would come to UWA and I began my master's and I had the opportunity to do, begin teaching here. Of course, teaching at UWA was a completely different experience from my teaching previously. And at that stage, I knew nothing about research. So that was another whole world that was to open up for me as I began my master of accounting studies. In 2014, you were appointed to the Australian Accounting Standards Board and then to the International Accounting Standards Board in 2017. If someone had told you as an undergrad that you'd sit in a role like that, what would your response have been? I love this question because I just have to say my response would be it, it was utterly beyond my comprehension. Right. I could never have imagined what I do now. And my, my husband sometimes says to me, oh, what, what, would you, what would your dad say? What would your dad say about what you do now? Um, you know, I didn't come from a family or a background of people that are associated with corporate leadership. Um, I'm the first person in my family to go to university. You know, these, this, the, the idea of what was going to unfold in my career, absolutely I didn't have any idea. And there are many, many steps and stages that I went through um, from UWA 1977 to um, IASB London 2017. Yeah, fantastic. Well, you yeah. should be proud of it, you know, yeah. and we're very proud of you as an institution. So. Thank you. Mm. Thank you. Um, so when you were appointed to the IASB, you had to make the transition from being primarily a university and research-connected individual to being primarily industry and professionally focused. So how did you make that transition? Well, when you think about what an academic does, the activities that an academic is so engaged in, the reading, the writing, the listening, the talking, the networking, they're all the activities that the board members do as well. So a lot of the things that I had been doing in my 20 years at UWA were very useful in terms of taking them to the IASB. So that was something that helped me in my transition. We wouldn't want a board that is comprised only of academics, but when you put an academic or two academics in with the mix of preparers, auditors, regulators, investors, then you get a, a, a very interesting and dynamic exchange of ideas. So that was one thing. The other thing is the board members and the staff of the IFRS Foundation are incredibly um, uh, focused on the goal. Um, the IFRS standards are about transparency, accountability, efficiency in the capital markets, and everyone in the organisation knows what the goal is. So it's a fabulous place of people pulling together and working together. So it's in our interest that everyone new comes, gets transitioned into the organisation and, and gets a team, a social buddy and a, and a work buddy and all the things you need to, to be productive. How has that been working in a virtual world? Is, is that still running efficiently? The IASB or the IFRS Foundation, we were very fortunate that we had some technologies already in place so that we could use those existing technologies. So that was one very positive thing. And the other thing is that virtual working can work very well when you know people. 
when you already know the people. And, and I know this was true from my university time as a researcher with international research teams. You were working virtually then and knowing the people made all the difference. So in the IASB world, people know, we know people. Um, it is getting increasingly difficult um, because there are many aspects of our work that we that we we want to be able to do in a face-to-face -face mode and we want to be able to be accessible to people and, and it's not just us reaching out but we want to hear what the other side is saying and, and we're more limited in how we can do that in a virtual world. So there's been positives, there's, it's been great that we put on, um, we're using virtual platforms and we're having participants from many more countries, um, much more diversity than we might have because we're accessing people in countries who in the past may not have the resources to travel to right. where we hold our meetings. So that side of it is good, but I am missing the face-to-face -face interaction. I'm missing all the conversations that go on. Because as we all know, when, when you're interacting with people, it's not just the formal sessions, it's the informal sessions, the dinners that we have, the other opportunities to mix with people. So we're missing that. Yeah, but, but sure. you know, like everyone, we're, we're pushing on and we have a very, very big agenda, very active agenda, and, and we're doing a lot of work. Fantastic. Well, good to hear. It's still, it's still going. Yes. Um, so, Anne, this is a very simple question, um, but one that I hope you can unpack for us. <laughs> um, so what, what gets you out of bed each morning? What makes you tick? <laughs> in the 20 years I spent at UWA, the thing that I got out of bed in the morning for was to do research. I just loved doing research. And the whole exploring and discovering things and then the contribution to knowledge side of research, I loved that. And so the, U the IASB work is somewhat similar in that we work on very specific projects. We have a portfolio of projects and, and we work on those. And the outcome of those projects is to make that sort of contribution. In, in this case, it's a contribution to the betterment of capital markets. And it's about changing things, so improving things. So I've still got, I've still got that big incentive there. That, that I can work on things that actually make a difference in the world. Mm. Since you've touched on your research, this might be a difficult question to answer just off, you know, off, off the top of your head, but can you tell us what, what was the research you worked on while you were at UWA that you were most proud of? And then can you give us an example of one thing that you've researched in, in your current roles that you feel has made a fantastic contribution? Right. So in my 20 years at UWA, my research topic was um, international accounting standards. So the whole 20 years then feeds into what I then went to London to do, to be on a board in an organisation. So I'd had the wonderful experience of taking a sabbatical for a year and working at the IFRS Foundation. So I'd already met the people and that was part of my research agenda, getting to know the people and the projects and so forth. But my whole... All my research had started from the first class that I had with Philip Brown, where he started talking about something called international accounting standards. And, and I, my ears pricked up and I thought, oh, this sounds interesting. Uh, and then, you know, it all comes from there, little steps. So we had to um, find a project and work on a project and, 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 and so forth. But I, so I did have a long time of working on something that feeds into what I do now. So some of my last work before I left UWA, I was working with um, Marvin Wee and we're working on something that's described as non-GAAP reporting. So non-GAAP reporting is a, additional um, performance measures that companies provide in addition to their um, numbers that they prepare using accounting standards. 
So this has become very, very topical, um, not just Australia, but countries throughout the world. This idea that on the one hand, you have accounting standards that tells everyone how to report so things are comparable and transparent and so forth. And then in addition, we've got companies that say, but I also want to tell you this, and the investors value this additional information. But there's a lot of issues around it. So we were researching it here at, at um, UWA, Marvin and myself and a colleague from the University of Melbourne. Um, we had an ARC grant. We were having a look at that. And now that work has fed directly into some work that we're doing at the IASB. Well, for me, it's fed directly into it. So at the IASB, we have a big project that we're consulting about at the moment, and it's called Primary Financial Statements. So in the accounting world, there's nothing more basic than primary financial statements. It's the balance sheet, the income statement, the cash flow statement. So what we're, plan what we're working on in that project is to provide uh, new ways of presenting the information in companies' financial statements. So we're proposing to introduce subtotals where we've got proposals around disaggregation. We've also got proposals around what I'm describing as these non-GAAP measures. So here's an example of something that I did at UWA, worked on for you know five years probably, and that information has been directly useful for me as I've gone into this role in London and, and I've been able to share that research with other board members and staff members and I mean, that's not the only research we, we get, but all my knowledge around that topic area has meant that I already knew about all the research around the world and I've been able to collect more research and we've been able to feed that into the staff. So there's um, accounting standard setting needs to be evidence-based. And for myself and for Tom Scott, who comes from Canada with an academic background, because of our understanding of the research, we can feed that in to the board deliberations and to the staff and help the staff with uh, gathering research that's relevant and sharing that with their teams and with the board. So really making use of research in a practical way to feed into the decision making. Yeah. Research isn't the only thing that feeds in. We have all sources of um information that we get from various stakeholders and various countries, various communities, but the academic research that comes from the global community can form part of that. So you were really ideally prepared for this role. You just It was just perfect for you. <laughs> well, but I was very lucky, very, very fortunate because there are 144 countries that use mm. IFRS standards. There are 14 board members. So there are many, many qualified people who m might be interested or potentially could do the job. I was just very fortunate that for me, the planets aligned, the stars aligned, and I'm very fortunate to be uh, in my taking taking this role at the moment. Yeah, mm. it's really good. I can mm. see I can see the passion on your face yeah, when you're talking about just, it. Yeah, it's just a great opportunity. Just as a matter of interest, mm. what what might be included in 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 the gap reporting? Is that kind of social responsibility kind of information? The, the non-gap information can be uh, lots of things outside. Financial. So financial is very defined around the assets and liabilities, revenue and expenses. And then if you extend that a little bit, you can get into the world of non-GAAP where people, in the first instance, they just change the numbers. They say, well, we're going to take out this impairment expense because it was a one-off and the investors and analysts are trying to predict for next year. So they want to know what the numbers look like if we take off the one-off. The exceptions. The yeah. exceptions, that yeah. kind of thing. So that's the first way people are using this idea of 
changing the basic financial reporting. So the financial reporting is not going away. It's the basic package. But in addition, the investors want to know this other information. Yeah. Um, but if you keep going down that pathway, yes, you do get into environmental and social responsibility type reporting, which is incredibly uh, important and interesting to people. Yeah. So ISB, primary responsibility as the moment, is financial reporting. Um, there are communities and organisations and people with a view that the IFRS Foundation could get active, could get active in the space of um, environmental reporting or social governance, that sort of thing. But that's all pie in the sky at the moment. Yeah. That's it. But when we talk about non-GAAP, it, it can extend into all sorts of other types of uh, reporting, more qualitative reporting, other metrics that people use, because all of it is about information and the information is what drives the capital markets. And, yeah, and so it's more information into the capital markets, better decision making, more efficient allocation of capital. Thank you for explaining that. That's good. It's interesting. Yeah. It is interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, so, and you've attended some UWA London dinners in the past. And these days, we're lucky to have you as a member of the UWA Business School Ambassadorial Council's UK chapter. What's your perspective on the power of overseas UWA alumni and friends to work for the benefit of this institution? The um, alumni, UWA alumni and friends, um, comprises some of the most amazing people with these incredible achievements. And I think that in itself, there's two things that can come out of that. One is the motivating element and one's the mentoring element. So knowing how the achievements of the UWA alumni and friends, that can be very inspirational, I think, to UWA students to see what is possible that, that Yes, they, they're here, and usually they're here physically, not just virtually, but they can look outwards into a huge world and, and so many areas uh, where people are working and achieving and amazing group of people. So motivating, uh, encouraging, encouraging people to really set the goals high. Um, and then secondly, mentoring, because a lot of people in that group are interested in giving back. They're interested in fostering and developing that next generation of people, because it's no point just sitting there in your own little world um, by strengthening and, and helping the potential develop for the next generation. I think that's a very uh, keen thing for, for some people as they, they move on in their careers. So this group, I think, has the ability to not just to motivate, but also to get involved in mentoring if that's their thing. And that's a, you know, a power from the alumni and friends group that where UWA can benefit. Yeah, well, thank you for being part of it then. Mm, yeah, it's, it's a pleasure. It's, it's great. I've got a couple of little extra cheeky questions for you. Okay. Um, if you could give some advice or if you could tell 18-year-old Anne something, <laughs> what, what would it be? <gasps> oh, goodness. I think about the advice sometimes that I give to um, my children, <laughs> whether they want it or not, or my children's friends or people of that uh, of that uh, other generation. Um, it's that the idea that things will work out. They will work out. If we are so rigid in how we think it's going to be, the disappointments are hard. Now, of course, there's disappointments along the way. Of course, there are obstacles, but it will work out. People are incredibly resilient and and. There's just that opportunity when you come to a block to rethink and go round and maybe change direction and try something different. So um, I think my refrain would be that, you know, th things things do work out. 
yes, you've hit a hit a roadblock here, but how, let's have a look at it and let's see what you can do and how you might respond to what has happened to you. And so, you know, things work out. Um, I, I, as we've said earlier, I could never have predicted that I would be a board member of the IASB. Um, and, and if I'd... I might have thought I could never be one because of all the other little journeys I've done along the way. But I got there in the end. Yes, exactly. Thank you. And just a last question. So you're a high achiever. You told us, you know, you, you were focused. What got, what got you out of bed was, was research. I mean, that's, that's amazing. So how, how do you relax? What's your, what's your downtime? Um, in, the, in the days with the... Uh, the university days, particularly in the early ones when I had a family who were in school, it was a very busy, uh, a very busy life. So relaxation activity usually involved the children, or uh, you know, and they got got older. They weren't little children; they were big children. So lots of things with them. But I think my main downtime activity involves um, getting out and about and getting into nature. So it, my my favourite activity would be swimming or beach walking. Um, I'm married to someone who is an exercise fanatic, so it was join join or be left behind. So um, we, the whole family then got involved in all sorts of activities like triathlons, and uh, so we're still pretty active with bike riding and swimming. And so uh, that that would be how I do my relaxing to to do some sort of physical activity. Yeah, sure. Because that then gets you to put the put the mind to the side and just participate in what you're doing. Yeah. And do you miss the Australian bush when you're in the UK? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, London is a great city and and so much to offer, but when I look out there and there's no there's no Australian sun and there's no Australian colors, so I love to be able to come back and um, once we come through the pandemic and travel gets reinstated, um, hopefully during my time in London I'll still be able to come back. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's, no, there's nothing like putting your your feet on a West Australian beach or walking through the bush. It's, yes, it's magic. Indeed, indeed. And it's been an absolute pleasure to meet you. And uh, thank you for sharing your story with us. And if any of our listeners want to contact you um, professionally or connect with you, you know, any questions they have, what's the best way for them to do that? People that are interested in our work, the work of the IASB, can contact us through the IFRS Foundation web page. All we have much, uh, we have a great deal of material on our webpage, and all our projects are there. And there's access into the technical teams. Um, all the documents are there. Should you wish to access them or comment on them, and you can email through into the technical teams. If someone's looking to contact me directly, LinkedIn would be a good way to make contact with me. All right, fantastic. And I'll put a link to your LinkedIn yeah. when we upload the um, the podcast. Yeah, great. Once again, Anne, thank you so much, you. and I wish you all the best. <laughs> thank you, Rob.